Well, it's good to see you all here tonight. I have been led of God to do a series on why we use the King James Bible. And tonight now marks the third week in this series. And I still just want to give one more lesson for our foundation on where we are heading. In the first week, we considered Satan's strategy as he attacks the Word of God. Remember the very first time that Satan shows up in the Bible, he does so with the purpose to cast doubt on the Word of God. He came to Eve in the garden and said, Yea, hath God said. And then Satan went on to offer her a modified version of the Word of God. And to this day, the devil is still attacking God's Word through omissions, additions, and substitutions. In the second week, we considered the issue of preservation, which was really dry but necessary because there are no original manuscripts left. And so for those who say things like, well, I trust the originals, well, then you don't have the Word of God. And by originals, I mean the actual parchment or whatever they would have penned the Word of God on. And so God had to preserve His Word for us to have a trustworthy um, Bible. And God did this through the copying process. We saw from the Bible how God preserved His Word through copies and how that equates to how God is doing that still today. And we can trust when the copy is done faithfully and accurately, we can trust that as the Word of God, if we can't, we have issues. And we know God would not leave His people without a word. Can I just get ahead for a minute? If God would not leave His people without a word, then why did it have to be discovered in the 1800s? For tonight's installment, I'd like to give you another lesson. Foundationally, we're going to eventually get to the issue of textual criticism. That's really the meat of this series. Remember, the bottom line to all of this comes down to the manuscripts that are used in the translation process. And you'll have to decide for yourself which manuscripts are the preserved Word of God and which ones aren't because you're going to hear the same arguments on both sides of the fence. To understand how we arrived at two different sets of manuscripts, we have to begin with what is said in the Bible. (laughs) That's a good place to start. And then we build upon that. And we'll do that by looking at secular history from the first century all the way through to today. And if you ever decide to research this topic for yourself, then you'll come across various names for these manuscripts that have been used to translate the Bible. And, and that goes for both the King James and the modern. There's, there's various names. But generally, they are classified into either the Antiochian text or the Alexandrian text. They are so named because of where the majority of these texts have been discovered. You may hear the Antiochian text referred to as the Byzantine text since Antioch was in the Byzantine Empire and not as common but sometimes you'll also hear it referred to as the Syrian text because Syria was in the Byzantine Empire, Antioch was in Syria and so you may hear some of these terms interchangeably. The Antiochian text which our King James Bible New Testament is translated from And by the way, this is largely a New Testament issue. There are problems in the Old Testament as well with translation issues. But this is largely a New Testament issue. Our New Testament, our King James, was taken from 
a Greek text called the Texas Receptus, which means the received text. It's been received. I think these little things are interesting. While our Old Testament translation is from the Hebrew Masoretic text. So what we contend is that those are the pure text. Those are the ones that have been preserved. You may hear the Alexandrian text referred to by names where they were discovered as well. You'll come across terms like the Codex Sinaiticus found in a Catholic monastery in Sinai and the Codex Vaticanus found at the Vatican, which of course is also Catholic. Seems like a red flag to me, but... Mostly these texts were found in Alexandria, Egypt, or they have an agreement with the text, those texts which have been found there, hence the name. And, and our contention is those texts have been, become corrupted. Now, to be clear, corrupted does not mean there isn't any truth in them. There is truth. I can lead someone to the Lord in a modern Bible. And so I know you hear something like that and you think, well, what's the big deal then? Well, I think the Bible says something like a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And so do you want something that is mostly truth or that is all truth? Would you like a drink of pure water or a drink of water where 15% has been mixed with mud? It still has water, but it's corrupted water. The Alexandrian text are the texts which, and, and, and we'll get more into this later. I'm just speaking very generically right now. They were texts which two men, B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort, believed were the best texts. And so sometimes you'll hear from, from camps, you'll hear those texts referred to as the Westcott and Hort text. And that's why I brought that up. Sometimes you'll hear that. And in modern versions, you'll also hear about the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament as well. The Antiochian texts are known as the majority text because as the name implies, that's the majority of the texts that are in existence. It's been received and it's the majority. The Alexandrian texts are known as the minority text because there are so few in existence. There are over 5,200 Antiochian texts in existence and there are only roughly 45 Alexandrian texts that have been discovered. And that should be very telling in of itself. Why would a group of texts where there are well over 5,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscript in existence and in agreement with each other be rejected in favor of only a few dozen manuscript pieces where there are several thousand differences? We'll get to that answer later in the series. I'm not saying that that fact in of itself proves truth. Just because you have more, it doesn't prove truth. I'm not saying that. But it does cast doubt on why the majority text, which has been viewed as truth for centuries, is now being rejected. Could it be the majority text has survived in such great numbers because it was recognized as truth? Does that make sense what I'm saying? If you're a group of Bible believers... What are you going to hang on to? That which is truth. Could that be the reason why there's so many of those texts? Could it be there are a few minority texts because it was historically rejected as corrupted? 
Also, the Alexandrian texts are sometimes called critical texts because of the issue of textual criticism. And I've already mentioned that's where I feel the heart of the debate is the, the spirit of textual criticism. Now, the point is, if you study this subject in depth, you'll discover there's many names attached to these manuscripts. When all is said and done, I believe we can say the issue is really a tale of two cities, Antioch and Alexandria, since these are the two primary uh, cities from which these two texts arose from, I think it's important to see what the Bible has to say about Alexandria and Antioch. So what do we know about these two cities in the Bible? What do we know about Alexandria and Antioch? And really Egypt, because Alexandria is located in Egypt. Now, I understand you may feel this is a non-issue tonight, but I view this thought as very foundational to where I'm going in this series. So I, I hope you'll try to stay with me as I give you a little bit of this information. Um, now, to be fair, there are no perfect earthly locations. There's only ever been one, and we decided to mess that one up. But according to the Bible, mostly bad things are said about Egypt and Alexandria. Mostly good things are said about Antioch. I think we'd all be in agreement that Egypt in the Bible is typically a picture of the world in sin. So immediately in my mind, there's something there that gets my attention when I hear there's a text which has come out of Egypt. In looking at these two locations, I'm going to begin tonight because there's a lot of places I could go. I'm going to begin tonight with the law of first mention. It's a Bible study method that doesn't always hold true, but for the most part, it's a good method of study. You find where something is mentioned first, and you study it, and you understand it, and it'll help you build uh, the rest of your meaning throughout the Bible. And so, it's just a guideline, but turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Preacher, don't you realize you just preached on this? As I was going back over these notes, I realized we just preached on all of this. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. This is the first mention of Egypt in our Bible. And the Bible says, There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon, Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. And so this is the first mention of Egypt, and it has the reputation as a place where they will kill you to take your wife. They were known as a murderous and lustful people. Oddly enough, they had such a high regard for the marriage bond, they'd rather be guilty of marriage than adultery. And so Abram, he fears for his life because he knows once the Egyptians see how smoking hot his wife is. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> They're going to want to take her. And so he comes up with a half-truth. It was a whole lie to tell the people that Sarai is his sister. And sure enough, as you... Remember, we covered this not too long ago in Sunday morning. As he gets to Egypt, they do want to take his wife. 
And Pharaoh does take Sarai into his house. And the only reason he didn't end up defiling her is because God intervened and he sent plagues uh, to, the, to Pharaoh in his house. We also know from Exodus 1, 11 through 14, that Egypt is a place where they enslaved the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy 4.20, Moses called Egypt the iron furnace. And that describes the hardship of their bondage. In Exodus 20 and verse 2, God himself called Egypt the house of bondage. It was in Egypt where they were killing the male Hebrew newborns while they were enslaved because they wanted to prevent Israel from continuing to grow at the rate they were. Really, it was an attack by Satan to cut off the Messianic line. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, future kings of Egypt, listen now, they were not to return to Egypt for trade. They were warned, do not make confederacies with Egypt. In short, Israel was to totally sever their relationship with Egypt. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. That's important. Biblically speaking, on the whole, Egypt clearly is not a friend of Christianity. They did not look into the Holy One of Israel. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't seek after the Lord God. And Egypt is associated with spiritual wickedness according to the last mention of Egypt in our Bible. Revelation 11.8 And their dead bodies, speaking of the two witnesses, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and oddly enough, the opening of this chapter will contain the first mention of both Alexandria and Antioch. And it's almost as if God is highlighting these two diametrically opposed locations for us to choose from. And I said it's almost like. I'm not saying that's why it's like that. It's almost like we're to, we're to really get a hold of this. Now look in chapter 6 here of the book of Acts. We'll read verses 1 through 10. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and great company of priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So we find in verse 8 
Stephen is full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. But from among these synagogues, there arises a dispute, and they want to argue with Stephen about things. And there's a group in there who are known as the Alexandrians. What were they disputing with Stephen about? If you were to keep studying this through chapter 6 and through chapter 7, you'll discover that what infuriated them was the fact that they didn't like Stephen preaching that Jesus was the Christ, that He was the Messiah, that He was God in the flesh. And so they didn't like how He was preaching about Christ. And this is at the heart of the issue of the two manuscripts being used. No surprise, but there has been an attack on Jesus and His deity in the manuscript issue. And there's no denying that, which I'll show you before this series is over. And there's other issues as well. Well, just like Egypt, the first mention of Alexandria is negative. And as a reminder, Alexandria is a city of Egypt. And if you keep reading, these groups listed in verse 9 were the ones responsible for leading an uproar against Stephen, which ultimately led to Stephen being stoned for his faith. Interesting that the Alexandrians of Egypt are among those responsible for the death of God's man. And just gee whiz, but when Paul was led to Rome, it was in ships from Alexandria. Acts 27.6, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And that ship eventually shipwrecked, and after three months, Paul was once again put upon a ship of Alexandria heading to Rome. Acts 28.11, and after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle whose sign, uh, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. There's only one other place where Alexandria is mentioned, and that's in Acts 18. It speaks of a man named Apollos who was born in Alexandria. He is spoken very, very highly of. He was an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, the Bible says. It says he was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. Well, that's great. But when you go on and keep reading, it says this, knowing only the baptism of John. Acts 18.26, And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. A man from Alexandria. Now, Apollos was a good man, and he went on to be used greatly by God. But I think it's very telling that when he first comes up, out of Alexandria, you have to understand, Alexandria was a, was a hub of instruction. I'll say more about that later. When he comes up of Alexandria, he had to be instructed in the way of God more perfectly. Well, what does that mean? It means something wasn't being taught right down in Alexandria. Or else he would have had his doctrine right. And, and what was it that he didn't quite have down? It was Christ. Because he had been taught the baptism of John. After he was taught more fully by Aquila and Priscilla, he went on to mightily convince the Jews. 
and that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So we see a trend where the common problem of those of Alexandria is their understanding and or their disdain for Christ. And that's an important point that we should not overlook in this debate. Now, what you need to know about Alexandria is that it was conquered by the Greeks. It was even named after Alexander the Great. Hence the name Alexandria. Naturally, there was a great deal of Greek influence in Alexandria. And this led to what is called Hellenization, which is where Greek culture, religion, language, and identity are adopted by non-Greeks, And these things begin to be interwoven into other religions and cultures. And that happened to the Jews. If you are so inclined, you can read about Hellenistic Jews. It was a form of Judaism where they combined Jewish religious traditions with elements of Greek culture. And the epicenter was Alexandria. Remember how the Bible says the Greeks seek after wisdom. Everybody remember these things? The Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, due to Greek influence, Alexandria attracted the quote-unquote intellectuals. And it attracted those who wanted wisdom. Man's wisdom. Philosophy. As a result, many deviant sects of religion were represented In Alexandria, religious corruption and false doctrine were prevalent, including Gnosticism and Arianism. And that will be very important as we progress. Now, before Christ, Antioch was caught up with the same problem, as really the whole region was. And that's all going to change with the arrival of Christianity. And that's what we need to highlight with Antioch. So here in Acts chapter 6, we find also the first mention of Antioch, and it is found there at the end of verse 5, and it talks about a man named Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. When the apostles needed deacons or helpers to assist in the ministry so that the apostles could focus on the Word of God and prayer, they decided, let's search out seven men of honest report, and full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And let's appoint these men over church business. The last man mentioned here, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. A proselyte was one who was once a Gentile, but had converted to Judaism. And in Nicholas's case, he eventually, obviously, converted to Christianity. And it's interesting how only his hometown is mentioned. But the point is, the first mention of Antioch in the Bible is associated with a man who was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. This would be referring to God's wisdom, not man's wisdom down in Egypt. Go with me to Acts chapter 11, please. Acts chapter 11, I'd like to read verses 19 through 30. A lot of interesting things happen here in Antioch. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, the Bible says... 
Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen the grace of God and was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came the prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So just to quickly break this down, in verses 19 through 21, we find the first great awakening of the Gentiles, and it's occurring in Antioch. In verses 22 through 24, Barnabas was sent to Antioch, and many people were added to the Lord there in Antioch. Notice in verses 25 and 26 that Antioch became the unofficial hub of Christianity. They were called Christians there first. And this is interesting. This is happening in Antioch, not Jerusalem. And when, they, when Barnabas found Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, where does he bring him? Not Jerusalem, to Antioch. And so they're called Christians there first. That's very telling And as we look at these two cities. What's a Christian? It's somebody who follows Christ. So much so that they're like Christ. In verses 27 and 28, prophets from Jerusalem came to Antioch. In verses 29 and 30, the believers in Antioch were missions-minded. And speaking of missions, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and, and Barnabas will be sent out from the church at Antioch. And then Paul and Silas will be sent on, their, on Paul's second missionary journey from Antioch. You see, Paul's home church became Antioch. That was his local church. And God used Paul to pen 13 books in our New Testament. Maybe 14, if you are on the bandwagon of him being the penman of Hebrews. Clearly, Antioch of Syria was a great place in the New Testament. We cannot deny this fact. And we can see how Antioch stands in stark contrast with Egypt and Alexandria. Alexandria was the hub of mixed religions because of the Hellenization factor while Antioch became the hub of Christianity. Now, understanding how we have two sets of manuscripts to choose from, which would you prefer? And, and I'm not saying this is the end all. I'm just building a case, alright? We're just laying foundation. But if you had to choose, do you want your text from Antioch, which was the epicenter of Christianity, or text from the epicenter of Hellenization and no friend to true Christianity. 
Remember, I mentioned earlier, God had warned the kings, don't go to Egypt. Don't be confederate with them. Don't make your allegiances with them. Don't go there for help. And they were to sever every relationship from them. Well, remember, Solomon didn't listen. God had said, you know, don't multiply horses. Why? That's what Egypt did. And yet, we know he did. He, He married all kind of strange women, which doesn't mean they were strange in the sense of... Anyway, they didn't have to keep a veil on their face or anything like that strange. All right, everybody loosen up, amen. I'm just trying to say, they, they're not like they were ugly. All right, is that better? Has everybody got it now? Uh, man, this is a tough crowd, I'm telling you. Uh, it was tough this morning too, but that's okay. I'm, I'm pushing through. And so he married these strange women, these foreign women, these alien women, these, these pagan women. And it turned his heart to wickedness. And listen to me, future generations didn't listen either. It never went well for them as a nation when they looked to Egypt for their help. Knowing that God didn't want His people to return to Egypt, knowing the damage that it would cause if they did, then why should we be inclined to look to Egypt for the preserved Word of God? Does that make sense? Why would I expect Egypt to be the possessor of sound doctrine. Doesn't it make more sense to accept manuscripts from a once godly city where they were first called Christians, sent out as missionaries, than to accept different manuscripts from a once wicked city and country where their teachings about Christ were corrupted? The answer is obvious in my mind. And I know someone's thinking, that's just a big coincidence, you're making a big deal out of nothing. And to that I would say, maybe, but that's your decision. I'm just asking you to examine the evidence honestly. Well, this is my last foundational message. Next time we'll begin getting into the issue of textual criticism. How these Alexandrian texts came into existence to begin with. And we're going to trace a line all the way from the first century beginning in the Bible, hopefully down through today. And eventually we're going to look at some differences side by side with the King James Bible and modern versions. Namely the ESV because that's the one that has gained a foothold in independent Baptist churches. So whether you end up agreeing or not, I hope you will at least understand by the time this is over why our church unapologetically stands on the King James. And we will continue to do so, so long as I am the pastor. And I hope you will be on that. Let's pray.